Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Jagmeet Singh is in town, and we spoke with him uh, talking about his plans in town here and also in the upcoming federal election. And we hosted the Chief's Town Hall with Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yeah, there is a federal election coming up, and uh, uh, well, October 21st. But that, that means, obviously, that the leaders of the parties are going to be crisscrossing the country, uh, making stops in uh, areas where they think they can garner some support. That's the way the game is played, obviously. Uh, the red has not been dropped yet, but that's anticipated it's going to be happening any day. We'll see about that. But to that point, uh, the leader of the federal NDP, Jagmeet Singh, is uh, in town today and uh, joins us on the Bill Keller Show here at CHML. Mr. Singh, thank you for the time. Glad you could join us today. Mr. Kelly, it's a pleasure. Let me ask you, Rihanna, first, I'd like to get your reaction to the uh, uh, story that we've been carrying here in the news this morning, and it's the uh, the Main Street Research uh, poll that was done for iPolitics uh, that essentially has the Liberals with a four-point lead over the Conservatives and the NDP falling to fourth place in this poll behind the uh, the Green Party, uh, which is rather surprising to an awful lot of people. How do you, uh, what's your reaction to that? You know, it's not really uh, reflecting the reality that I see on the ground. Uh, people tell me every day how excited they are about our new deal for people, the fact that we want to take on the, the governments in Ottawa, liberal and conservative, that continue to make life easier for the richest, and it makes their life harder. And so they're excited. We had uh, over 800 people at a rally in Toronto. That was packed with people. We've had events all across uh, the GTA, packed with people, lots of folks excited. So it doesn't match the reality that I see on the ground, uh, that I hear from people on the ground. And, and more importantly for me, I mean, it's always going to be about the final poll. The only poll that really matters is, that on uh, October 21st. Uh, and, and that's, I think, the, com- the consensus among other people, too. Obviously, it's what happens there on, the, on that federal election. But the concern uh, f- uh, for, uh, I guess, any political party at this point uh, is going to be, do you have traction? Do you have uh, momentum moving forward? And and these polls seem to indicate that a lot of what's going on here, and, and frankly, I, you can probably say this to a certain extent about the other parties, too, uh, the public doesn't seem to be gravitating to a lot of those messages as of yet. Well, I mean, I, I can only tell you what I experienced on the ground. We had a, an event in Brampton where we had over 1,200 people come out to a massive rally. I mean, we're pulling out big numbers, and it, it, to me what it shows is that people are telling us, hey, we are worried about the state of affairs. We can't find housing. We are worried about our health care system. And we're saying we can actually fix that. We can invest in housing. We can build half a million new homes. And we can expand our health care system to include medication for all. That's going to significantly relieve the pressures on hospitals. When people have the medication to stay well, they don't end up in the emergency rooms. They don't up in the ho- don't end up in the hospital. These are some really concrete ways to respond to what people tell me are their biggest concerns. And I'm confident that more and more as you speak to people and they hear our solutions to the problems they face, they'll come to us. And they're already coming in big numbers. We're seeing massive uh, turnouts at our events. Did we lose you? Well, I thought we just had a blip there. Uh, let, let me ask you about the health care situation, because obviously that was paramount here in the province of Ontario, uh, especially since uh, we have elected a premier last year that uh, promised to end what he calls hallway medicine. Uh, after a little more than a year, I don't see much progress. As a matter of fact, the situation seems to be getting worse. Uh, one of the things that we've talked about is being proactive with health care. I mean, once you're in the hospital, you're already sick or you, you need attention. Uh, we'd l- rather have more people that don't need that kind of help uh, because they've looked after themselves in a proactive way. Part of that, of course, is a national pharmacare program. I know you're an advocate for that. Uh, the concern that a lot of people are raising about that, though, is, look, at we just can't afford to do that right now. The, the, the money's just not there to, to pay for something like that. How do you respond to that? Well, I think that we can't afford not to do it. We had a report, an independent report, that pointed out 
that if we had a universal pharmacare program, it would actually save us $4 billion. And that's just direct cost of the medication itself. It doesn't factor in how much we would save. Uh, I'll give you one concrete example. I met an emergency room uh, nurse who treated a young kid who came in because he couldn't breathe. Um, he ended up doing the intervention, helped him breathe, and find out well, you know, what happened to make him in that position. turned out that he had a puffer, but he couldn't afford the $100 attachment that went onto the puffer that allowed the medication to spread into his lungs. That simple, small attachment that cost $100 was too expensive for the family, and it meant that he ended up in a hospital room costing thousands of dollars. That's things that we can avoid. That's a way that we can save money for our healthcare system, but also that kid shouldn't have to go to the emergency room because he couldn't afford a little attachment on the puffer. We would cover that. So that's a big savings. On top of that, we're not afraid to say this. We're going to ask the super wealthy, the, the people at the very top, to pay a little more, and it's going to help us fund our promise and our commitment. It can be done. It's a matter of choices, and we're going to make right choices. One of the other, well, let's put it this way, common criticisms, I guess, and I know you've heard this in your political career, uh, I said the NDP are an anti-business party, that they're going to tax, 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 and that, that's bad for business. It's going to drive jobs away. Well, I would say, I mean, this, this program here is something that uh, chambers of commerce across Canada have endorsed. Uh, there's chambers of commerce from B.C. and Ontario that all said, hey, universal pharmacare would actually save us money. And we know that's true. We know that it would save each employer on average about $600 per employee. So it's a massive savings for business. It's uh, a competitive advantage because what it does is it says, when you invest in Canada, not only is your health care included, but your medication is included. And that's one of the biggest costs when it comes to employee benefit packages. We think that, you know, your job or your income or your salary should not determine your benefits. Everyone in our country should have access to the health care they need. If you need medication, you should take your health card, not your credit card. What message do you have for, for the business community uh, to, to try to allay some of those concerns that an NDP government would be bad for business? Well, we believe business is important. But it should be done fairly. It shouldn't be a business where people aren't getting wages that are good enough to live a good life. We believe that we want business to thrive in a way that is benefit for, beneficial for everyone. We've seen the economy, and as it grows, it actually hasn't gotten better for people. I, I speak to people every day, and they tell me they're working harder than ever before, and they're not getting ahead. I want to build an economy where everyone gets ahead and where that's going to create an opportunity for everyone to be able to participate in the economy. It's going to be good for business. It's going to be, I don't believe in inequality, so I'm not going to be someone that's going to promote some people having massive wealth and others not. But I believe a good business, a good thriving economy means everyone benefits, everyone's able to do well, and that's something that's good for everyone. You, you talked about a tax on, on the very wealthy, and, and uh, what about that that tax? And let's apply that to how you would treat the business community, because they're afraid of taxes there, too, because that impacts their bottom line, which obviously is going to have some impact on the viability of the business itself. Uh, Is the NDP plan also to tax the the wealthy corporations to try to get some of the income that you're going to need for some of these programs? Yeah, we're going to ask uh, the wealthiest corporations to pay their fair share. We believe that we can be competitive, but also have those at the very top contribute their fair share. We know that there is a lot of wealth, a lot of successful businesses that are, you know, we're talking about the multi-billion dollar corporations that are doing very, very well, banks that are doing very, very well. They should pay their fair share. Uh, they should be able to contribute to building a better society. There's a lot of reasons why people choose Canada as their home. It's a country that's got stable, a stable government, that's got a um, good education system, and it's got a great healthcare system. These social services are what makes us a beautiful place to live, and that's why people want to invest here, and we want to make sure that it's continues to be a country that 
is competitive, but also make sure that people live well and have fairness in their lives. I want to talk about trade, if I could, for a couple of minutes. That seems to be one of the common stories around the world these days, obviously. The, the turmoil in the U.K. is basically because of the Brexit situation and the European Union and that relationship. Uh, there's the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There's the possibility of trade with China. Uh, there's, of course, the much-talked-about uh, new NAFTA deal that uh, has yet to be ratified by neither the Parliament or the U.S. Congress. But trade is, is, is the story. Trade is part of commerce. Uh, the NDP has traditionally been looked at as a party that is protectionist and doesn't seek to, to build those international uh, partnerships through trade. Uh, what would an NDP government do? Well, our focus would be on making sure we have trade agreements that allow our incredible workers, who are amongst the best in the world, to compete on a global scale. But right now, if our trade agreements don't create a level playing field, all that's going to happen is that work, manufacturing jobs, are going to go to the lowest uh, cost sector. And that's not good for Canadian workers. So instead of uh, the recent NAFTA agreement, what my biggest problem is, is that it didn't put into place protections for workers or for the environment. So what it means is that while people here in Canada, uh, workers here have to go through certain, you know, have the benefits of certain workers' rights and have certain regulations when it comes to the environment, have to compete with other jurisdictions like Mexico, where there isn't the same protection for the environment, where there aren't the same wages. And it's going to be impossible for our amazing workers to compete. So what I would like to see is fair trade, where we're dealing with other countries in a way that creates an opportunity for our workers to compete, but not where we're competing with our hands tied behind our back. That's not helpful. That's not going to be good for our workers. And that's what we're really, really we're focused on. But the argument that you're going to hear from, from others, including people in the business community, is that's going to make Canada uncompetitive because the lower wages and, and the, the more friendly environment for, to create industry is going to be in these other countries, and, and we could end up losing. Well, I mean, if, if we're sending jobs where there's lower salaries, we're losing jobs here, I don't see how that benefits a working person. I don't see how that benefits someone in Hamilton. If our job is to help uh, the wealthy corporations make more money by uh, paying less to their workers, and then we have no one working in jobs here in Hamilton, that's not going to help. Uh, our job is this. How do we create a climate where people benefit, or people have good jobs, where we're competitive on a global scale, but it's not just benefiting the people at the very top, it's actually helping out workers. And we can do that if we make the right policies. One example is we spent a billion dollars recently on buying trains for Via Rail. Now, we own that. That's a publicly owned crown corporation. But we spent that billion-dollar contract on a German company. When we have a made-in-Canada solution, Bombardier, that employs thousands of Canadians, other countries in the world have made-in-their-own-country provisions. What I'm calling for is in Canada, we need, when it comes to procurement for our publicly-owned corporations, we should have a made-in-Canada provision so that there's a requirement that materials have to be made in Canada, and that encourages creating jobs in our country. We've got to be clear. The policies that we make will have the outcomes. And if we don't have policies that encourage jobs in Canada, then we're going to lose them, and people aren't going to have a good life. Mr. Singh, would an NDP government reach out to China and, and, and begin talks about trade with that country? More, more intense uh, trade, that is. Yes, I'm open to trade, uh, but I, I also want to really underline the fact that if we're trying to compete with a jurisdiction that doesn't have the same workers' rights, that doesn't pay their salaries, the same salaries, then our workers can't compete. Our, like I said, we've got some of the best workers in the world, one of the most educated workforces. They can compete with anyone if it's on a level playing field. I want to make sure that any, any trade deal that we strike has to keep in mind, will it benefit people, workers, or does it benefit the powerful, wealthy corporations? If it's only benefiting the wealthy corporations, then no, it's not a deal I want to get into. But if it's a deal that's going to ensure that we've got opportunities for work for our Canadian workers, Yes, it's something that I'm going to look at. 
We, as uh, everybody around here knows now, since uh, it was just imposed here in uh, Ontario a few months ago, uh, are part of the carbon tax program instituted by the federal government uh, some time ago. Uh, we already know that Mr. Scheer has said that if he forms the next government, he's probably going to scrap that tax altogether. Uh, what would an NDP government do? Uh, we believe that there is a price on pollution, and we see that price. When we pollute, and when companies pollute, it means the air gets poisoned, the water gets poisoned, and there's a cost to that. So there's got to be a cost to pollution, there's no question. Uh, but the way that cost is applied right now, Mr. Trudeau exempted the biggest polluters. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's the right thing to do. We also need to make sure that some part of the money that we're, we're gaining from the price on pollution is used towards investing in a cleaner economy. It means investing in public transportation, electrifying vehicles. It's invested in retrofitting homes. We've got to use the funds that we can get together to make people's lives better, reduce their costs, and reduce our emissions. There's got to be a price on pollution. It's just got to be done the right way. Right now, the, the Mr. Trudeau's program is rigged in a way that benefits the people at the very top and, and is a uh, pressure for a lot of people. We want to make sure the system is fair. Would you, would you scrap the program that's in existence right now or just, uh, just t- tinker with it? Uh, we, we would change it dramatically and make sure that it works better so that it's not exempting the biggest polluters, uh, so that we're using some part of the funds that are, are recovered to invest in, in programs that actually make people's lives better, reduce emissions, and invest in public transit, do things that will actually improve people's lives. What about the rebate element of this, which is uh, one of the selling features, obviously, that uh, not just the federal government used, but the B.C. government some years ago when they instituted their program put in place as well. Would you maintain that program? Yes, the rebate program is a good program. It, it helps uh, take the pressure off of families, and that is something that's actually very effective. Uh, what I wouldn't do is uh, give rebates to the wealthiest, the people at the very top. And I think that's a, that's a problem that, that exists in the system. But the rebates to middle-class families, the rebates to lower-income families, that's, a, that's actually a good program. What would the threshold be then? Because uh, you've got to draw a line someplace. I mean, one of, the, one of the things we're looking at is that, you know, there's, there's a taxation system that acknowledges that those at the very top should have a different taxation. So uh, similarly, the, the, top, the top income earners, they're the ones that, you know, millionaires shouldn't be getting a check. Uh, that's a pretty simple place to put the, draw the line. So with that in mind, then, uh, obviously there's a concern about a, two, a two-tier system. That's, uh, in other words, the wealthy would not qualify for that, but they're still paying the tax. Absolutely. That's exactly how it has to be, the same way our taxation system works, that if you're really wealthy, you've got to pay a little bit more. Uh, if you're really wealthy, you don't get uh, rebates. I mean, that's, that's a system that makes a lot of sense. I'm pretty sure if you ask most Canadians, they'd say, yeah. I mean, you know, middle-class families should get a rebate because we're, we're the ones that are you know, not earning enough. And those at the very top, you're making millions of dollars, for sure they, should have, uh, they shouldn't have the rebate. Well, you're in Hamilton today. Uh, let's talk. I've got a couple of minutes left here. I want to talk about the steel industry. Uh, there's been sure. a great deal of concern about what's happening. Stelco, of course, is getting back on its feet, and that's great news, of course, for this community. Uh, ArcelorMittal Tafasco doing quite well at, at the same time. Uh, but there's still some concern about workforce and about conditions and about lo- the longevity of the steel industry. Some are suggesting that the government needs to step in and offer incentives, uh, which uh, some are doing, I, you know, obviously, with some of the money we've seen in the last little while. But protection for the Canadian steel industry in general, not just here for the Hamilton area. How do you feel about that? Oh, we for sure need to protect our steel industry. There's one massive concern that's been raised a lot of times. It's uh, steel dumping, where uh, low-cost steel, low-quality steel is dumped into, into Canada, and it drives down the, uh, the cost of steel and, and also drives down the quality. It's unreliable, and it's very problematic. That's something that we can address at the federal level with better, uh, better controls on our duties and our, our imports, making sure that we we look out for uh, steel that's being dumped. We 
we also need to acknowledge that the, the tariffs that were in place for so long were quite damaging. We long called for those tariffs to be removed. It seems pretty uh, absurd that our, that Mr. Trudeau would have negotiated a trade agreement but allowed illegal tariffs to be imposed, and that was very problematic. And then, uh, Mr. Kelly, what I was talking about, when we need to move towards a procurement program that encourages or incentivize made in Canada, I mean that, and that's made in Canada steel and aluminum as well. If we have provisions where we use our public dollars, you know, we're building infrastructure like bridges or roads, or we're investing in trains, there has to be a made in Canada provision. Uh, many other countries have this. Germany has it. The U.S. has it. If we have made in our own country provision, it's going to ensure that there's an incentive for made in Canada steel and other products. It's going to build up a stronger manufacturing sector, and most importantly, make sure that Canadians have jobs. Mr. Singh, thank you so much for the time. I know you've got a busy schedule. Uh, we really appreciate you taking some time for us today. I'm sure we'll talk again between now and Election Day. Mr. Kelly, I'm sure we will. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, Jagmeet Singh, of course, the leader of the federal NDP party. And we will endeavor, as we have done in every election, municipal, federal, and provincial, uh, to get the leaders of the parties here on the program to uh, give you an opportunity as to what's going on. And uh, we expect, as we say, the writ to be dropped in the, uh, well, we already know the election day, but that just kind of ramps up the uh, the campaign into full gear with the, the major parties. But the poll today, the Main Street poll, is rather interesting, uh, and that is that the NDP are falling to fourth place behind the Green Party now. The Liberals with a four-point lead over the Conservatives at the top of that heap. We'll see. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Chief's Town Hall is about to begin. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio for the entire hour. Morning, Chief. How are you doing today? I'm very good, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Listen, before we get to anything else, I'm sure there's a wide range of things that we're going to talk about in the program today. Uh, I want to ask you about school bus safety and, and the, obviously the story that motivates this conversation was uh, one that we carried on CHML yesterday uh, about a school bus that was stopped, uh, letting kids off. And, of course, I think we all know the protocol. The lights flash on the bus. The little alarm with the stop sign goes out there. Two, not one, but two people ran that. Just, I mean, there was apparently one guy who was already stopped, and the two and second and third cars behind him actually pulled out and bam, right by the school. Thank God nobody was injured. Yeah. But uh, you, you found them. Yes. By some, well, talk, tell the story. Yeah, I mean, this has been a perennial problem, as you know, and we, we just talked off um, uh, air here for a little bit, and, and the kids kind of assume that nobody, you know, is going to drive through, but we know they do. So, you know, one thing, uh, it'd be great for them to check before they step out, but it's not their concern. The concern is those drivers who feel that they are in such a hurry they need to go by, or just are ignorant of it. And if you think back to your driver's test, it was one of the first questions. I remember when I did mine, it talked all about school buses. Because of the potential, and this is a potential to kill a child. I don't think anybody wants to do that. But are they thinking about the consequences? Actually, no. So what is contemplated in the legislation? I don't think they're there yet. Is they're going to revise the statute under the Highway Traffic Act that allows us, through video evidence, to proceed with charges against the registered owner. Part of the difficulty we have through the course of time is you get people who either get video or otherwise. Uh, it's the old when we're at police college. Identity is always a fact and issue, which is true. So the crowns have to prosecute those charges. They have to ensure that we've properly <coughs> identified the driver. Uh, it's contemplated. We may be a little premature in laying of those charges, and we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but, you know, our intent is to hold those uh, drivers who do that accountable. And if the legislation uh, changes to allow us to charge the registered owner of the vehicle, uh, we're fully in support of that. 
in, in this particular instance, uh, the, the one, somebody had a dash cam, so they identified that, they gave you that information, and you were able to track these people down. Uh, so that's why the charges were laid in a situation like that. Uh, but this is, this is, you can't plead ignorance here. I mean, everybody knows what the law is. Well, I don't think you can. And you've got, you know, this chrome yellow bus, and they've researched this for years about what is most identifiable. The signs go down, and I get it. You know, if the signs aren't out, it means the vehicle is traveling along as per normal. But as soon as that gate goes down, the sign comes out, it says stop, you got all the flashing lights, like, to your point, I don't really know what more you can do, uh, maybe set off fireworks to get somebody's attention to say, you need to stop. Anybody who's been in a situation like that where they have stopped, and thankfully they have uh, four school bus in both directions, of course. Uh, I, I know that kids are supposed to look both ways before they cross, but they're usually so excited uh, to get out of school and get back home and play with their friends. They, I, I see them oftentimes just run right across the road. Yeah. Because they've been told that everybody's supposed right. to stop, so they feel, okay, I'm safe. I, I don't need to look both ways. Yeah. And, and that's a problem. I mean, that's a discussion I think parents and teachers have to have with the kids at the I same agree. time. Just from a safety perspective, we had a few years back, it was Inspector Scott Raston actually introduced, called Cadastrians, and it was a British-based program, but they did things like, okay, if you're going to step out between vehicles, which is never recommended, you should cross at the crosswalk, here's what to do for personal safety, and so we were instructing kids on that. But it's hazardous because then you start to get people crossing in areas where there is decreased visibility, all the rest of it. So I think to your point, the education aspect is uh, for those schools to do it, uh, perhaps even the school bus companies, although I don't know whether they take that on as responsibility, uh, but we want to keep the kids safe. And, you know, you know people aren't going to stop sometimes, so why not avoid it if you can help it? What about monitoring? I know when this program started and, and you know, about stopping both ways, I, I know you actually had officers on some of the buses at one point to try to make sure that, that people were adhering to the law. Uh, you can't, from a staffing standpoint, continue to do that, obviously, but is there some measure that, that could be considered here to, so that we can monitor? Monitor this. I mean, thankfully, somebody had the dash cam and was able to identify these people this time. Otherwise, uh, who knows what could have happened. Yeah, and we've been running a school-based uh, bus program for years. Uh, Sergeant Myra James introduced it when she was in the traffic office. And it's if we get the information, we will call up the register owner and send a warning letter to... Uh, explaining the consequences, the fines, all those things. So it's not that we've been dormant on this thing. We've been doing that. All, all I'm saying is if the legislation changes, and my understanding hasn't quite yet, it's being contemplated, that gives us an extra tool to hold those uh, registered owners accountable. Much like red light cameras, they change that. And you know there's a discussion going on around radar and community safety zones as well. So that's a big piece. Uh, have the uh, chiefs of police made a, a, a position on this? Have they stated their position of the province? Uh, I don't know if they've come out with a, a formal statement. I do know that a couple of jurisdictions are running pilot programs, Niagara-York, where uh, the bus companies are installing those videos um, kind of permanently as opposed to a dash cam in the appropriate places. So I'm really interested in the outcome of those and then back to, you know, the legislation. And I know we've got Claus Wagner researching that to make sure we are current because uh, sometimes with the rate of change in, in, in laws these days, it just happens and you go, oh, okay, they're going to do that. So... I don't know formally, and I am on the OACP as, as a vice president. Um, I'd certainly be speaking out to, in support of these. Uh, one other issue I want to cover before we go to your phone calls, 905-645-3221, star 9900. Uh, I know we had a brief conversation about this uh, over the phone the other day, but you uh, finally did a, uh, organize a meeting uh, with uh, representatives of the LGBTQ community uh, that, that took place. I, I'd like to get your read on that and what next steps might be. And, and also, well, we're going to continue the conversation, obviously, but... Uh, 
the Sons of Odin showing up at City Hall this past weekend. Uh, there's a real concern about uh, public safety, not just in, in, in the square, but in the downtown area right now. Uh, so let's, let's mesh that into the conversation as well. Yeah, let's handle some discrete items. So uh, first of all, you know, to reestablish the relationship, which had waned, uh, no doubt about it, uh, through the course of history, uh, through many of uh, uh, the community participants, and a number of them dealt with either Chief Mullen um, in part, uh, Chief DeCare, and obviously we have a gap, and we're trying to reestablish that relationship. I think it's important. So if you're looking at the problem solving, and, you know, without naming the participant, one of them talked about the approach we had to take collectively for public sex in washrooms. And then you've got the complaint perspective from families attending and Center Mall, for whatever reason, used to be a kind of an epicenter. So we worked collaboratively to say, okay, we understand that, and this may be not the best place to do. And I understand that you've got consenting adults who do that, but it's in a public place. So there's kind of got to strike the balance there. It's different than the bathhouse. It's different than the other things that have gone on through the course of time. But my point is, if you can work collaboratively to meet both objectives, because the last thing we want to do, too, is, is um, you know, cause additional harm to whoever has been involved in that activity. Um, so we're working towards that. We're, we have another meeting coming up. I think it's contemplated, but it'll be up to the group. Uh, it's contemplated there may be a large town hall meeting. It's in the works. And, you know, without speaking, because... You know, it's not mine to say. It's a collective effort. So I'm still waiting for the feedback of the second meeting. We're going to discuss and do an overview of the themes that emerged at the first meeting. Uh, I think, and to respect to the committee, that the committee has to do that work. I did talk to a couple of the members that attended that meeting the next day, and and well, you heard some of their their comments on that, and they. Frankly, the I, the consensus is, and I'll just paraphrase this: is they didn't feel comfortable at that meeting. They didn't they didn't feel as if if everybody was being forthcoming and and and, and open about this sort of thing, and and they felt a little intimidated. Uh, I didn't get that sense because we had people tell their own personal stories, uh, quite frankly, which I you know uh, I I applaud that they would be willing one to come, two to participate. And three, I mean, there's a range of opinions around that room without getting into anything that'd be divisive. There are a range of opinions. There's a range of approaches. Um, and we need to listen to the collective voice on the whole piece. I get that. From the accountability aspect, which we talked about, uh, quite frankly, I have many methods of accountability in policing. We have a complaint that's ongoing and being investigated. We have contemplated by the board doing certain things. We have the criminal process where the accountability is before the courts with a judicial uh, or a judge who will, you know, adjudicate on it. And, you know, if we're going to talk about kind of the Constitution, the Supreme Court law, uh, at the end of the day, it is the courts that decide these things. It is the legislators that construct um, the statutes. Our job is to enforce the law in a thoughtful way. And it's not just reading the act on its own. It's looking at those Supreme Court decisions through the course of time. So I think it's instructive, and I've brought the code with me in terms of Section 2, and the f- it's a fundamental freedom, talking about what those fundamental freedoms are. So, I mean, can I t- talk about that now, or, but it's a much larger discourse, I think. All right, one of the other uh, roles and responsibilities, though, is, is to keep the peace. Correct. And there are, there are those that are suggesting that uh, you could do a better job on those Saturday morning rallies at City Hall. The, the confrontations, the intimidation that some people are feeling right now is, is, is not the kind of atmosphere that they want in their, t- their community. And I know uh, you've had discussions on this show relative to certain people having discourse. You know, when you have Bernie Farber, who's advocated against anti-Semitism for years and years, recommending, you know, there's a fine line between freedom of expression and speech, which is guaranteed in the Constitution, Supreme, Supreme Law, and 
the crossover and hate propaganda, and, you know, I do have uh, some pieces on this. Uh, this is the tension that exists not just in our community, but certainly across Canada, whether it's Calgary or other communities that are facing similar things. This is the tension. So if the assertion is because it is offensive and we need to arrest on that basis, the courts have been clear on that, and the Constitution is clear on that. So, um, you know, as I say, that, so let me just read you one thing here quickly. So Section 2, everyone has the following fundamental freedoms, freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication, freedom of peaceful assembly, and freedom of association. So when you look at the case law on this, particularly around uh, religious um, belief, you have a fundamental conflict in that um, others may not believe it, but the courts have stated, if you truly believe that as a religious concept, provided it does not step over in hate propaganda, then you have the right to say so. So I'll just read a quick thing here. Freedom of expression was entrenched in the Charter to ensure that everyone can manifest thoughts, opinions, belief, indeed all expressions of the heart and mind, however unpopular, distasteful, or contrary to the mainstream. And the second, which I believe flows out of the Regina versus Kigstra, which was a Supreme Court decision, that's back in the 90s, but it was really a seminal case. Uh, the term expression embraces all content of expression, irrespective of the particular meaning or message sought to be conveyed, and no matter how invidious or obnoxious the message. While the court has held that expression which is communicated in a physically violent form may not be protected, communications such as hate pro propaganda cannot be considered as violence nor as analogous to violence so as to fall outside the protection of the subsection. Seems to be an odd expression, but the courts, and again, it's a Supreme Court decision speaking to a Constitution provision as a fundamental freedom. So the courts have dictated that if it does not broach into that area of hate propaganda, and that's covered by those sections specifically, then people are entitled to that freedom of expression. So things that state, you know, against, uh, they, they don't believe in the political position. There are certain religious positions that are in religious ideology that fundamentally conflict, um, and they're saying, provided the person, and there's prescriptions around the religious belief and so on. So this is a very fine line between freedom of expression. And who makes that decision? The, the officer at the scene? Well, they have to be guided by the law. So regardless of my opinion on it. Because I, 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 you know, I, I don't say I know the law, but I mean, we all yeah. think I understand those precepts. That's, that's fine. Uh, and, and I think, you know, when, when that was conjured up, but Speaker's Corner in London, you know, somebody's standing up there and spouting off whatever their belief is, and they get 15 minutes or half an hour or something, and yep. people usually just walk by and don't pay any attention. Some stop and listen for a couple of minutes. But this is different. This is, this is at the point of confrontational. Uh, and and I, I think the concern that I'm hearing from a number of people mm -hmm. in that community is that look at uh, when somebody's got their finger in my face and they've got anti uh, you know or homophobic uh, signs and or placards or whatever the case might be that's that's gone beyond free speech that's intimidation. Well, that's what the courts have spoken to, and that's why you know it's not my determination. I'm guided by the courts. My first obligation as chief, if you look at my oath of office, is to uphold the Constitution. The second is around keeping the peace. So I'm just saying, it's not, it's not a trite thing. It's not an inconvenient thing. I'm obligated to uphold the Constitution. I don't determine the Constitution. No, I know, I know. Nor do I determine the case law from the Supreme Court of Canada. I am guided by it. If you're going to have change in the process, and we've seen some of that change. For example, we've had recent amendments to the criminal code that have finally removed anal intercourse as a prohibited activity. 
finally, and that's after years and years of petitioning. So when you have consenting adults who engaged, it was fine. If you have conditions where you've got a youth involved or other things, that's a whole other ball of wax. But on the code for years was this particular offense. Now, obviously, with the change in times, hasn't been enforced, and for good reason. I'm just saying, you've got this fundamental tension between belief systems. I mean, I just look to, yes, it's in our community, but look to the other communities are dealing with similar issues. So if the precept is, I wade in and make arrests on the basis of freedom of expression, it's probably not going to stand up. If I wade in because there's specific criminal threats, being assaults, threats, if there's a hate counterpart, that's considered on, di- uh, on uh, disposition by the courts. And we saw it most recently this week uh, in a decision where it was determined a hate crime on the bus with the assault of the 73-year-old bus driver. We have enforced that legislation when we can do so. Like, again, it's, it's not an out. I'm just saying I have to be guided by that law no, I, as I your think, officers. I, I think we understand that. Right. Uh, the, the, the concern that, uh, that keeps getting raised, though, is, is feeling safe in public safety. And I understand, I, I, I understand where, where you're coming from. That's the law. Uh, and you know that we know know the criminal code has been changed right now. Uh, homosexuality used to be against the law. We know that. So that's changed. That's great. But and I know there are people that don't agree with that, and mm-hmm. uh, and people that that have no, uh, a concern for that and a problem with that because for well, religious, moral, or just plain reasons that we, nobody understands. Uh, but do they have the right to intimidate people? No, an intimidation, if you're looking at there's specific conditions to meet on intimidation as well. So if you're stating your position in a forthright manner, and they talk about breach of the peace again, for unlawful assembly to reach a breach of the peace, it has to be tumultuous. In other words, if people are shouting, and think about, well, I'll just give this as an example. Uh, we as the police, um, and we have uh, an F the police, you can figure out what the F stands for, marches that have gone on for years. We actually uh, attend those and ensure that the participants who are allowed to demonstrate and voice their opinions on that, which is neither hate propaganda, they're entitled under freedom of expression to do so. And we have safeguarded and assisted them. So think about it um, from an offensive standpoint. Could it be offensive? Sure. But that's not the point. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's uh, the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert, is with us. We can't spend the entire hour talking about these issues. I know it does take up an awful lot of time, but I think deservedly so, uh, because it's a, a concern to an awful lot of people in the community. Uh, let, let me just wrap it up with a question here, and I'll let you get uh, your, your read on this. Going forward, uh, will, will police be handling some of these events, some of these issues, in a different way than they have been in the past? Yeah, one of the things we've, we've seen, actually, um, is we've got great cooperation uh, through City Hall around SEPTED, or Crime Prevention Through Environmental Design, whether it's bollards that have been placed there, um, fencing when it's required or not. Um, as you know, some of the uh, people who are uh, protesting have been moving around from City Hall now. Uh, let me just be clear on two. I, I find these things obnoxious. I find them offensive. All those things. I do. It's what can I do within the law to enact because you can't just arrest because you think somebody's obnoxious. There's there's no provision in the criminal code for that. Around breach of the peace, we'll certainly intervene there. Uh, certainly on our operational plans, we consider the law in terms of what is allowed or not, in terms of this fundamental tension that exists. And when people breach the law, and you've seen it, we will proceed with charges uh, when you have either hate propaganda or genocide made out or 
the various criminal offenses, mischiefs, assaults, all that. Stuff. Nobody wants those things to occur. So fundamentally, our role is to keep the peace at those events, and we'll continue to do that. So that's whether it's a march on the street. Think back to the Black Bloc. Think back to the anti or the Poverty Coalition. Um, all these groups that have, um, and I, I'm not just singling those. I'm just saying through the years this has gone on. So the courts have rendered decisions about what can or can't be done, and we're guided by that. But you know, I find obnoxious. I find all those other things certainly personally distasteful, and not that I'm in agreement. Um, so going forward, and I just want to talk about the hate crime and our hate bias incident. So hate crime is actually a crime plus uh, the prohibited grounds around gender, sexual orientation, all the prohibited grounds. Hate bias incident is when something, let's say a racial epithet is made, but there's no specific criminal offense. We track both in our jurisdiction. And one of the things I think coming out of, remember the burning of the Hindu Samaj? It's not that long ago. Uh, the, the community gathered together, and we have had increased reporting since that time. I know it's been played that, oh, yes, you're the hate crime capital of Canada. Well, actually, we have more reporting than many other jurisdictions, in my view, that are extremely diverse, and I know these things go on, that are just never reported. So I think reporting is a good thing. We report the bias incidents as well because we know that these particular people may escalate. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but I think it's important to track it. So we do track it, we do, um, and we've instituted a hate crime investigator back in the days of Brian Mullen. And think back to what has happened in, in town here. There's been a community um, effort to say we're not gonna tolerate that. And I think where people are saying that in a manner that is civil, in a manner that they express their concerns, I would certainly support that. The Constitution does, we do. And I think uh, it's proper that they say we're not going to tolerate that. And, and that's great that that's a, a community attitude or what these sorts of things. But those people that are saying, hey, we're not going to tolerate that are, are looking to police and say, you, you, guys, you guys have to have our backs now. And we do in as much as the law allows us to. But again, I can't arrest uh, people for, and we don't have thought police here. I can't arrest them for expression that doesn't fall outside the guidelines of the Constitution. When it does... When there are physical threats, when there's mischiefs, when there's those other things, we will proceed. Uh, I got a couple of emails that we're going to get to phone calls. David says, uh, could you please ask the chief about these protesters who show up wearing masks and hoods, uh, carrying weapons, about why they aren't charged with wearing a disguise with intent? Peaceful protesters don't show up uh, in large numbers wearing that kind of stuff. So uh, a stick that's attached to your sign is a stick until such time it's used for another purpose. It's much like if you think about a knife. Um, how many of us have used knives? I use one on a daily basis. I cut my meat and I, and I butter my bread. But when I turn it to a weapon, then it becomes a weapon. As for masking, and this has been through the courts as well, that you show up wearing a mask. So think about religious connotations here, where you have uh, burqas and where you have hijabs that may partially cover faces. That's not an offense. So if you make a blanket statement that says, anytime you show up anywhere with a mask on, now, again, where it broaches into breaches of the law, then we would look at masks with intent, all those things that they're talking about. But the fact that you've shown up at a demonstration wearing a mask is not in and of itself an offense. Uh, all right, we, we've got to move on. I want to get some phone calls here. And some people have been very patient on the lines, and uh, we'll get to those. And uh, whatever comes up during the phone calls, uh, we'll certainly address here uh, with uh, the Chief of Police. The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's go to the calls. Uh, Tony, thank you for your patience. Go ahead. All right, Chief, a uh, couple of points here. Uh, on uh, the auto and pedestrian, uh, you're talking about uh, it seems like all the time that the cars are in the wrong no matter what happens with a pedestrian or, or a bicyclist. But I see uh, that people are, uh, they, 
they've reduced the speed limit down on Aberdeen, that people will just walk out and expect the car to stop, or you're backing out of a spot, they walk behind you and expect you to stop. All this is uh, very good in me people, but people don't realize. When I was a boy in school, they used to say it took uh, about five seconds to stop a car in a safe manner. One second to react, one second to apply the brakes, and one second for every 10 miles an hour to stop a car. That's five seconds, and you're traveling at uh, at least a car length for every second. So you're traveling over 100 feet in, in five seconds. And these uh, pedestrians and bicyclists, that's, uh, you give them their distance to pass them, and then when you stop at a light, they squeeze by you between you and the curb. And then if you uh, give them a horn and say, hey, guys, you're supposed to be done, they give you the finger. And wh- why, why is always the motorist being punished? Uh, because these uh, pedestrians and bicyclists feel that they have the rights over top of a, a motorist. Okay, so you got a couple themes here. One is civility. That seems to be a common theme today. Uh, second is your rights and obligations. That's also been a theme today. Uh, when you talk about just safety, you know, to walk behind a vehicle that's backing up, it's just not like you could be right, but if you're underneath the wheels, it doesn't really help. You're dead right. Uh, or could be. Um, the second piece, uh, and, you know, we, we look at all the traffic accidents in the city. There actually have been pedestrians charged with offenses, cyclists charged with offenses. Uh, if you've actually uh, ran, and we've seen it, run into the side of a vehicle, it's actually the pedestrian that's at fault. Uh, to your point about, you know, just the safety aspect, stepping out and thinking you're entitled, you're not just as a pedestrian. And, you know, again, you might think you're right, but if you're struck by a car, I don't want to be right and hit by a car. Um, there's that safety aspect. But certainly there's not a blanket a- approach to how we investigate uh, those accidents. And actually sometimes, and, you know, sometimes the cyclists or pedestrians think, yeah, but I'm the pedestrian. Yes, but, you know, you either did something that was prohibited or you were actually the cause of the accident, then you're held to account for that. And those have been contested in the courts and bad decisions. So um, you raise some really good points around safety, personal safety, keeping in mind what the driver has to do in terms of reaction time and your own rights and obligations, both as a pedestrian, a cyclist or a driver. Your own safety is your responsibility. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Tony, great. great call. Thanks so much for this. All right. Okay, I remember a driving instructor many, many years ago when I was uh, going through that process said, anticipate that they're going to do something wrong. Just, I, I just, you know, be on the lookout for it. Don't, don't think, well, that law says that guy's going to stop at that stop sign. What if he doesn't? I mean, he's not saying, you know, don't, right. don't be afraid, but always consider that, that, that somebody might do something wrong and always be ready to respond and react. Which means, by the way, don't text and drive. And yes. Probably my favorite is left turn signals on and they turn right. Yeah. <laughs> and you go, oh. we should never expect that. Well, you kind of, it might be a possibility. They think they've got the right signal on, but they don't. 905-645-3221, start 9900 for our Chief of Police, Eric Gert. This is the Bill Kelly Show at 900 CHML. Alvin, you're next in the program. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I, uh, By the way, I have an excellent driving record. But anyway, that's aside from the point that I want to bring up. I want to know uh, who you speak to in order to get proper procedure done at the uh, police department, and how do you go about getting proper follow-up? I've been dealing with uh, this police department since 2005, where they failed to do any proper investigation on my complaints and any follow-up whatsoever. 
And I, it's pretty horrendous what's going on in my life with this harassment and continuous theft. And I've made uh, complaints about uh, mail theft. And also, there was a, illegal entries into my safety deposit boxes in my bank. And yet, there was no follow-up on that from the police department, except that they went to talk to the bank manager, and whatever he said to them didn't comply or, or help me in any way whatsoever. Okay, that's a specific complaint, Elvin, and uh, we do have processors that, certainly if it's gone on since 2005, and you've talked about uh, investigation, some steps, uh, it may not have met your satisfaction. We do have a complaint system, which can be done independent of us through the Office of the Independent Police Review Director, and where we our normal intake is through, and it would be the staff sergeant in this case, or detective sergeant in fraud, because it sounds like if it's mail theft or appropriation through your safety deposit box, uh, then that would go to that particular detective sergeant. And there are, is oversight on those. And uh, if it's going on that long, certainly, uh, you know, I'm sure you're aware of those uh, processes, but that's that's where it would be taken. All right. Uh, and uh, make sure you follow up on that. I appreciate the call, Alvin. Thanks very much. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Uh Phone calls uh, we'll get to in a couple of seconds here. Emails at bkelly900chml.com uh, from Gary. Could you please update us on the legislation dealing with cannabis? I understand edibles are now legal. Not yet. Um, it's actually. Oh, well, I'm glad you emailed then, Gary. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> and actually, that was one of the topics I had today. It looks like they're targeting late October this year to come out with the regulations. As you know, and part of back to the OACP, we've recommended that if they were going to legalize cannabis. Uh, that when you get to edibles um, and consumables, that required a lot more thought. We certainly looked at what happened in Seattle. Uh, We're very concerned, as am I, about the distribution in candies that would be appealing to children, uh, because I've talked about this on this show before, and I'm not a chemist, but I do know that the capacity for children to process THC versus adults is very different. And when you look at toxicity and the range of reactions that will happen based on what you've consumed, I do know I've seen some of the advertising to date, and they're, they're moving it away from that. And, in fact, I most recently saw a picture where it's, quite frankly, very plain packaging. It just looks like a cube uh, that you might use for OXO or something, and it states what the THC content. That's just edibles. But uh, fundamentally, THC can be introduced just about anything you consume. All right. So uh, on the horizon, October, going to be through the feds. I haven't seen any provincial legislation to regulate it yet. Uh, but there may be both approaches, both at a federal level and a provincial level. Uh, let's let's talk about enforcement. Uh, with the legalization of, uh, of cannabis, obviously, uh, this does not mean it's open field and, and open season to do whatever you want, wherever you want. I mean, there are still some regulations, especially to do with domestic, that have to be adhered to, are there not? Definitely. Uh, there's a personal possession amount that you can have. There's a personal possession amount that you can have for plants and inside your house, which is four plants, not per person, but per household. Um, and it's uh, 30 grams, as you know, and it comes in various forms, too. It could be liquid. It could be um, uh, keef, which is scraping off the crystal lines on the top of the leaves. It could be actual cannabis dried or wet. Uh, those regulations, quite frankly, I think you need to look at because it's quite complex. And those remain in place 
Uh, the dispensaries, we know it's contemplated that the uh, provincial government is looking at expanding a number of the licenses, but currently uh, there are only a couple here in Hamilton. Uh, the illegal dispensaries, as you know, we've been actively working on and shutting down. Uh, some of the change in legislation on that too. It used to just be business premises. Uh, they have expanded through the Cannabis Secretariat and amended the legislation to allow us to seize residences that are distributing cannabis uh, illegally. So, uh, particularly for landlords, um, and we know there could be some problems or you may have a number of them, um, it gets a little complicated in terms of seizure, but you can actually have your house seized now and restrained, and then there are certain provisions for that restraint um, and obligations that met before it's turned back over. So um, the government's changed on this one too. So lots going on in this area, and you got to stay current. Um, I certainly know there's websites dedicated to this, um, and you, if you're going to consume, then you certainly have to do it in a certain manner. i got a couple of minutes left. Uh, oftentimes when we get calls uh, about police procedures and, and what you can and can't do or should or shouldn't do, I guess, uh, you cite the Police Services Act and, and as, as the guideline. This is, this is the, where the guardrails are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand there have been some, uh, some revisions to that act. Yes, and in fact, um, the Liberal government had contemplated, passed it. Uh, there was a portion that actually around community and safety well-being that was um, received royal assent and, and was uh, put into place. Uh, the Ford government, the provincial government currently is revising that uh, with a view to publishing that. And then it's the regulations, the actual workings of it. We are now meeting with a number of groups, not just the OECP, the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, AMO, uh, City of Toronto, on and on it goes, at a table to convene to look at the regulations, what they may look like, everything from governance of boards to uh, oversight to uh, specific regulations, to adequacy. Uh, it's quite comprehensive, and we're involved and, you know, really appreciate being involved in that and invited to the table uh, in those discussions. Uh, that will come out through the provincial government, through the Solicitor General, and uh, don't really know the timeline. It's targeted for 2020. I don't know if it'll take longer. I'm certainly not going to speak for the government on that piece, but uh, it's in the works. One of the more contentious items though, was police oversight. Uh, the, the previous system, some people were thought was just too complicated, uh, took way too much time. Uh, is, is there any attempt to try to, to, to improve that? Yeah, without getting the specific terms, there'll be one oversight agency for both uh, what currently is the SIU, uh, OIPRD, uh, and what they'll rename that, and it hasn't been confirmed yet, and then OCPC, which is the Ontario Commission on Policing, um, which oversees more boards and other uh, aspects. So they're trying to convene it under, I believe it's the Inspector General, uh, who will have oversight for that. So that's not in place yet, but certainly out of Justice Tullock's uh, report, and if you remember, he was involved uh, post the legislation on the collection of information and I didn't make this up, in certain circumstances, prohibitions and duties, otherwise known as COI legislation. Um, he then was tasked by the government, the Liberal government, with looking at the oversight agencies and reporting back to the government, which he did. And as you know, the OECP um, has supported a lot of the recommendations that Justice Tullock brought back. Well, because the biggest concern is is when there is a complaint that is lodged, uh, the, the time that it takes to actually go through one of these investigations uh, is not fair to, to the officer who might be named. It's not fair to the people bringing it forward. It's not fair to anybody, really. And it just anything they can do to expedite that process is going to be helpful to everybody involved. Agreed. And particularly with SIU investigations, we've had them go on up for three years. 
So, you know, I know our officers are affected, uh, but I think about the family and wanting the answers where you have a three-year gap before the final report comes out. And SIU's got much better in terms of their uh, specifics about what they did, the investigation, who they spoke to, all that stuff. Um, you know, a timely response is, is definitely in need. We see that with, uh, you know, police uh, actions that we do on a regular basis. And when we get the oversight agencies, they can take quite a long time. So we certainly share that frustration, but certainly for the family members who have lost somebody, um, it's it's far has huge impact. Uh, we're out of time. Thanks so much uh, for those who called in, the emails and uh, tweets. Uh, sorry for the ones we could not get to, but uh, we'll do this again in just a couple of weeks. The Chief, thank you for being here today. Thanks, Bill. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.